back to the beginning. The song that we first uh, started with this morning, I suspect people found it quite familiar, and it's one that's been around a long time. What's it based on? 23rd Psalm. Now, when you think of the 23rd Psalm, do you actually think of the text in Scripture, or do you think of the way we sing it? Or sing it, you know, to the, the tune of Hymn. Is that the one that's in your mind most? I would have thought so, because interestingly enough, when it's sung to the tune Crimond, it's probably by far the best known passage in the Bible. Like Amazing Grace, known widely among people with no interest in religion. And they know it because it's so frequently used in funerals and in weddings. Strange combination. But people find its words greatly comforting and encouraging in times of grief and difficulty, as well as in celebrating the prospect of a happy future. You may recall that when sung to another tune, it's the theme song of Dawn French's comedy TV series, The Vicar of Didbury. So it pops up all over the place, and people recognise it, even though they don't recognise uh, quite where it, uh, it comes from. Now, the book from which our Old Testament lectionary readings are taken this month is 1 Samuel. It's about the first kings of Israel, and you may remember <coughs> that last time I was here we reflected on the fact that Samuel was not very happy with their desire to have a king instead of continuing with the judges that had guided the Hebrews for over a 100 years. The book tells us that Saul, the first king, was a disappointment to God. And Solomon, in all his glory, whom we thought about last time, started the downward spiral that led to exile in Babylon. Not a very good record for kings. <coughs> but by far the most famous of the kings was David, who reigned between Saul and Solomon. The Bible tells us that he was a man after God's own heart, and that despite a life which was had a few character flaws and failings. So sometimes people wonder how it is that uh, he was so regarded. And I wonder if it was because he was a compassionate man, and he was a man devoted to following God, even if he did slip from time to time. And he was a writer of worship songs. That's what Psalm 23 is. So I got to wondering when, in David's long and challenging life, did he sit down to write the 23rd Psalm? What prompted these words which resonate with so many, even today? In his day, the shepherd was usually the youngest son in the family, and his task was to find water and good grazing for the sheep that the family owned to protect them and care for them. It was from this daily task that David was called to be anointed secretly as the future king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. And as our reading this morning tells us, it was shortly after that, that he was sent by his father to take food to his brothers fighting against the invading Philistine army with their formidable champion, Goliath. Now, in protecting his sheep, David had fought off a lion, 
and a bear by the sound of it, and his faith in God was such that he had no qualms about facing up to this bear of a man. I suspect nine feet might be a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> Other translations say seven feet, which sort of comes within the bounds of reason. Uh, anyway, the king wanted to outfit him with armour and a sword, but as the story goes, he rejected all that and went out armed only with his shepherd's sling. And with one stone, he dispatched the intruder. And I see him sitting in the grass by the still pond he has found for his beloved sheep, back against the tree, his club and crook by his side, reflecting on the amazing and unexpected path his life has taken, seeing God's care and, and direction in all that has come to pass so far, likening it to the same care and protection he provided for the flock in his charge. No wonder he saw his life stretching out before him, accompanied by the same instinct for justice and mercy that had been with him thus far. A young man with all his life stretching before him. But as a much more mature man, a battle-weary king, experienced in betrayal and hardship, he penned another psalm, Psalm 22, just before Psalm 23. Really interesting to have those two so close together. Because the opening words are the ones which Jesus spoke from the cross. Even though it sounds like a cry of despair, those Jewish men who heard Jesus speak those words had from childhood memorized the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So they would have known that it also says toward the end, the Lord did not hide his face from them, but heard when I cried to him. It's not just a psalm of dereliction, but a psalm of confidence in the, the ongoing will of God. There's a well-known story in John's Gospel which tells of Jesus picking up the theme of the shepherd, talking about how the shepherd walked ahead of his family's small flock, which followed because they knew his voice, and how at night the various small flocks were penned together uh, in the village sheepfold. Well, anyone growing up in New Zealand during the 60s and 70s, before the dropping of Muldoon's farm subsidies in 1986, knew that our country had a lot of sheep. Over 60 million sheep, to be exact. And uh, the population at that time? Three million. <laughs> there were 20 sheep for every person in the country. That's a lot of sheep. For me, this topic of shepherding brought back many memories. You see, my grandfather and his four sons, my uncles, all farmed sheep. And it was my delight in school holidays to spend time with my cousins on those farms. A favourite memory is of a rainy night when my uncle brought into the big farm kitchen two wet and bedraggled orphaned lambs, wrapped them up in towels, and set them on a blanket beside the warmth of the glowing wood stove. I saw how he cared 
for his sheep. However, over the years, I also learned that sheep farming in New Zealand was big business, a far cry from the subsistence farming with which Jesus' listeners were familiar. A style of shepherding there that had changed little over the centuries. And it's actually relevant to note that there were 120 references to sheep in those scriptures that Jewish males knew by heart. Little wonder that for generations, the image of the shepherd and all it implied was regularly applied to their sovereign. Kings were actually judged by how well they lived up to that image. And the prophets castigated them when they did not. Ezekiel, speaking for God, says, You did not strengthen the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not sought the lost. But with force and harshness have you ruled them. And although it's a long time since Queen Elizabeth's coronation, the scepter given to the sovereign at the coronation has a long-standing symbolic connection with the shepherd's staff. It goes way back in history. A reminder that it's an important part of the king's role to care for those over whom they rule. Now, in discussion with friends in the States, I noticed that uh, urban Americans have almost no personal knowledge of sheep and tend to regard sheep as rather stupid animals. They get lost. They can't find water or pasture without a shepherd or biblical information. But in fact, it turns out that sheep are among the smarter of domestic animals. And in Jesus' day, they could certainly recognise and follow their master's voice. With the growth of urbanisation in New Zealand, I wonder whether similar stereotypical attitudes to sheep and to agriculture in general have led to a lack of interest and appreciation of the depth of these biblical metaphors when seen in the context of first century Israel. But how do these images help us when our flock is still under threat and likely to be so until they all have the opportunity to be vaccinated against COVID? What have we discovered during the pandemic that might help us cope with the so-called new normal? Surely it's more than remembering to wash our hands and uh, scanning the nearest QR poster. Are we already beginning to slip quietly back into patterns of the past that have served us well? Or will we recognise that the situation has changed in fundamental ways with creative forms of communication and ways of meeting electronically that are likely to be as revolutionary as the advent of the printing press was at the time of the Reformation, or the smartphone has been in our day. Is there anybody here who doesn't have a smartphone? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, while now, at least in New Zealand, we can, be, we can pretty much go back to what is familiar, we are surely challenged to explore new ways of being church in a digital age. Meeting electronically and working from home has uncovered ways of interacting and communicating that helped us through the lockdown 
can now open up new possibilities of forming community and sharing the good news. You know, as well as meeting clients over a cup of coffee, I now regularly have hour-long mentoring sessions on Zoom. And I guess many of you are using Zoom in terms of your daily work. Just last winter, Knox Centre for Ministry and Learning held a nationwide series of studies where two presenters dealt with a class of 45 people who could see each other, respond in real time to questionnaires and be broken up into small groups for deeper discussion. And congregations who started streaming their services during the lockdown are continuing to provide online worship along with their regular services. Most weeks I join about Most weeks I join about eight to ten members of the Franciscan order to which I belong for an hour-long Bible study by Zoom. They're all in the States. They're spread from New York to San Francisco. And they meet on Thursday evening. But for me, that's lunchtime on Friday. We reflect on the gospel passage set in the lectionary for the coming Sunday. And I join the session just by clicking on a link in an email. Very simple and great to regularly see and share with folks which otherwise I wouldn't have the opportunity to meet face to face for more than once in 12 months if I can afford to fly to the States. With Zoom, Facebook and YouTube, congregations are connecting with people from all over the place who wouldn't normally come to the church. And while the challenges of coming to grips with the technology can be demanding, there's always someone who can guide us through it, either in person or online. However, surely the challenge from the shepherd image with which we started is to do these things, use this technology in ways that are distinctly relational, in ways that allow us to express our care and our concern, in ways not limited by geography, in ways that continue to feed us with words, images, and music in ways that build us up in the faith and builds us into a lively community with a strong sense of belonging. We need to think way beyond the local church. Perhaps we need to heed the words of John Wesley when criticized for not preaching in a church. He said, the world is my parish. What's the extent of ours? That's the question I'd like to leave with you.